All right, good morning. Grab your Bibles. We're jumping back in the Word today. Um, you got to bear with me. My throat is trashed. Had a ball game. I coach football, as some of you know, and uh, we have won two games in a row. We're 2-0, and but as you can tell, I'm a little, <laughs> little charcoal from from yelling so much. But um, anyway, we're still going to get in the Word. We're going to study here, and we're going to dive in. And the good part is if I don't come across real clear, you can always pause this and look back at it and see what I actually said. Hopefully my voice won't crack or do anything too weird. But grab a Bible. We're going to go into 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know how this works. This is not church. As I always say, this is just a video of me preaching the word. And tonight we'll gather as a church here in Tempe, Arizona. And you're more than welcome to come join us. We We want you to. So hit us up online and we'll tell you how, how to find us. You can get us through social media, through the website, through uh, email, however you want to contact us. And uh, we'll tell you how to find us and you come hang out. Uh, it's a great time. We spend time in the Word. We spend time praying. We spend time eating. I mean, it sounds like a good time because it is one. You come. Anyway, I've been working through a cross-shaped life series of Second uh, Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 11. So go there, get your Bible. Uh, just backing up for our theme in first Corinthians, our theme comes from first Corinthians chapter two, verse two. It says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we repeat that every week because it's important. That's kind of what we built the whole theme of what we're studying around. So, that brings us to a cross-shaped life as a title. And what we're gonna look at today is the Christian Medal of Honor. Okay? The Christian Medal of Honor. Have you ever thought about what would qualify somebody for such a a title as that, like a Christian Medal of Honor? What what, what would be the criteria for that person? And I know Christ gets all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. I know all that. But suppose we awarded a Medal of Honor to Christians. What would be the criteria? What would be the grade that we would use to make that decision? Um you know, their success, their failures, what, what, what would, how would we grade someone to receive such an award? So keep that in mind. We're going to look at this. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I'll read a couple of verses and of course we'll cover more, but let me read a few here first. Verse 29. Paul says, who's weak and I'm not weak. Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus. He who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. Let me uh, pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, God, it's awesome. I say that every week that it is a privilege to preach your word, to share your word. That is your word, not my word. And I say that every week because it's important to me to be reminded of that and to let others know as well, Lord, that it is your word. I view it that way, not as mine. Don't ever want to put words into your mouth. I want you to put your words in mine. And I ask these things for your glory. Christ's name. Amen. So, some of you may know, but uh, my family, we moved here to Tempe, Arizona from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And probably you, many of you have no idea. I know plenty of people here have no idea uh, where Chattanooga, Tennessee is. But it's actually a pretty important location in the south. It's in a pivotal spot where Tennessee, Georgia, and, and uh, Alabama all meet. All three states is kind of sitting on top of that juncture there. And... In the Civil War, because of that location, it was a vital 
spot. And there were a lot of battles that went on there. And if you ever go to Chattanooga, you'll know that because so much of it is centered around Civil War history. There's cannons all over the place. There's monuments. There's cemeteries. The largest uh, battlefield that still stands is there. We actually live down the street from it. Uh, it's a big deal. It's full. Chattanooga is full of stories of battles from the past and uh, particularly the Civil War. One story is of 22 Union soldiers that in April of 1862 snuck way deep behind enemy lines down to Atlanta and they stole a train. And that mission became, you can look it up, became known as the Great Locomotive Chase or Andrew's Raid. You'll see it called in some places. But they they went there, they stole this train from Atlanta and they took the train to, to Chattanooga and along the way there they... uh destroyed multiple things in an effort to cut off the Confederates' supply route because the, the Confederate Army had control of Chattanooga. The Union Army was going to attack it. So this train route and robbery, they robbed, took the train, that uh, uh, heist or whatever from Atlanta up as they came up. They were cutting off that army uh, the armies of the South from getting to Chattanooga to try to defend it. So they, they cut telegraph lines, they destroyed railway tracks, they tried burning bridges, they did all these things. The raid ended in complete failure. It, it, it was a total failure. Some of them were captured, some of them were executed. The, uh, most of the damage that had been done by these guys was quickly repaired by the Confederate Army. Things were things were reversed so fast that the Union Army basically delayed their whole plan to try to uh, attack Chattanooga. So in a, in a lot of ways, it was a complete failure. But that being said, these men, these Union Army officers uh, were or soldiers, excuse me, were hailed as heroes. One of them in particular, Jacob Parrott, he was a private among there, and he, along with six others were the first to ever be awarded the Medal of Honor, U.S. Medal of Honor, the very first ones. So when I say this man got the Medal of Honor, and yet I also say that the end of the story was failure, why, why is that? Why would he get the first Medal of Honor ever if he was in a failed attempt? Well, it's because it wasn't the victory. It was the sacrifice that saw them worthy of the honor. It was the sacrifice that made them worthy of the honor, not the victory. So as Christians, we, we need to stop, and this is where I'm going today, but we need to stop boasting on those that the world sees as worthy of honor. And we need to start boasting on those who, through their suffering and weakness, have verified truly their love for Christ, and they've been aligned with him alone. You're going to see Paul a picture of this. So you got two categories really we'll look at today. You have those who um, are living in the honor of the world, you might say, and those who are living for the honor of Christ. So you have the honor of the world and the honor of Christ. We'll pull it apart. Honor of the world first. So back up to verse 16, 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to go quick. You can always pause this or go back, so don't don't worry about that. But Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so I can boast a little bit longer. That's what he's saying here. All the way back in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 11, he said, we've already looked at this, but he said, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please do bear with me. So Paul's not 
calling himself a fool here. He's not actually a fool. And he's made that clear as well. In verse 6, he said, "If I'm a, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not unskilled in knowledge. So he's made clear he's not actually a fool. But what he's doing is he's being sarcastic. He has been doing that. Now, in this particular section of the letter, he gets heavily sarcastic. So sarcasm, most of you know what it is, but just to make clear, sarcasm is... Excuse me, is typically used of to make someone feel a little bit foolish by saying the opposite of what is actually meant. Okay? So I'll give you some examples. If you ever watch the show Friends, and, you know, I know I'm old, but maybe you've watched it. But if you ever watch the show Friends, there's two characters on there that are best friends, and they roommates, Joey and Chandler. Chandler is probably one of the most sarcastic characters ever. And on the show, he's always being very sarcastic. One episode in particular... Chandler is telling his roommate Joey about making a phone call and the woman that he called not answering. And Chandler says this, I got her machine. And then Joey says, her answering machine? And then Chandler says, no, interestingly enough, her leaf blower picked up, (laughs) which is sarcasm, obviously. Another example, in another episode, they had lost a baby and they were trying to find it. And when they do locate the baby, there's two babies and they're not sure which is which or which one to pick. So they decide to flip a coin to decide which to pick. And one baby has a shirt with a clown on it and the other baby has a shirt with a duck on it. So they're going to flip the coin regarding which one. And Joey says, okay, ducks will be heads because ducks have heads. And Chandler says, what kind of scary clowns did you have at your birthday? So you might have to think on that a minute, but that's the point, okay, of sarcasm. It's, it's a little bit humorous. It's a little bit slanderous maybe even. Uh, but in Paul's case here, his sarcasm is filled with a little more bite than that. He's a little more frustrated. He's had enough of these guys, man. They've slandered his name. They've been challenging his teaching they've challenged his credibility as an apostle they're confusing this church that he planted and he loves and his sarcasm is not sinful it's not that sarcasm is sinful especially in paul's case it's just a type of speech it's exaggerated speech here to show the extent of his frustration if that makes sense so verse 17 he goes on what i'm saying with this boastful confidence i say not as the lord would but as a fool See, he's being sarcastic there. I'm talking like a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast too. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Can you hear the sarcasm? It's so loaded with it. He's talking about these super apostles back in verse 5. That's what he called them. Again, that's a slanderous, sarcastic type uh, statement. But that's what he called them. And here he's outright calling them fools. You see that in verse 19? Outright calling them fools. The idea is you seem to enjoy fools, guys. So maybe I should just behave like one too. You know, since y'all are so wise to consider us all fools. That's what he's saying. The church seems to follow the wind uh, of whatever these men say. Whatever they say, they just go with it. Paul's addressed this with them already back in verse 4 of chapter 11. He said, if somebody comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, look what he says, you put up with it readily enough. We already talked about that, but he says, you endure it, you accept it, you don't, you don't fight about it. 
And again, Paul's been faithful to God's word in contrast to these other guys. He's been faithful to God's word alone. In 2 Corinthians 4, we talked about many weeks ago. In verse 2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Almost like he's intentionally contrasting himself with them by saying that. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's writing to a different church, obviously. But using some of the same ideas of language here, he says this in verse 11. God gave the apostles, and he goes down a list, but we're talking about apostles here because Paul is one, and he's frustrated with these people who claim to be that he's referring to as super apostles. So God gave the apostles, in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, way, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, he's talking specifically about these guys and how they're just carrying the church in Corinth wherever they want them to go, you know, and they're just being tossed along by. Paul explains specifically what he means. Look back at our text in Second Corinthians 11, verse 20. He says, for you bear it, you bear it, you accept it, you're okay with it. If someone, and that someone is a sarcastic bit of language, he's talking about these religious leaders, these super apostles. So if, quote, someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. This is what the honor of the world might look like in a Christian environment. A religious environment. Not Look what he's saying. They're not being treated this way for their faith. Like it was persecution or something. But they're being treated this way through their faith. They're accepting religious abuse basically based on the appearance of piety. These people seem righteous. They seem in charge. They seem pious and whatnot else. So therefore they must have the right to treat us this way. They're blindly gullible. Their acceptance of whatever doctrine seems best. If they say we should be smacked in the mouth, we should be smacked in the mouth. (laughs) They honor whoever looks best here. They look right. They look good. Verse 21. Paul says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Man, that's some sarcasm. Major sarcasm. Oh, well, you know what? (laughs) Shame on us. We We didn't have the strength to hit you in the face. You know? Or to take advantage of you. We just didn't have the strength for it. Poor weak us. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of. Again, he's, he's using kind of generic language. Anyone else. But he's, he, he means them. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of. Sarcasm again. I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He's, I sound like an idiot saying this. But let me say it. I'll boast of that too. He says in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. He's being very blunt here. The honor of the world, too, here is really pictured among believers. We so gravitate towards respecting heritage, regardless of what doctrine people may be saying. Hey, his daddy built this church, you know? His grandparents sat in the front row. Doesn't matter, you know, we trust whatever he says. I'm just, just an example. And it appears that these false apostles were obviously Jewish as well. And Paul's sarcasm here suggests that maybe they were arguing to be recognized as leaders. Um, 
and followed because of their heritage as Jews. They're they're calling out these Hebrew Israelite Abraham things here. So the reference to being Hebrew, Abraham's the first one to be called a Hebrew. So they're tracing that all the way back to the beginning. They're saying their heritage is from the beginning Hebrew, all the way back to Genesis. Israelite is the national lineage, so they're claiming that they have a birthright to the nation of Israel, that Abraham had other sons, but the birthright of God was through Isaac. Isaac had sons, but the birthright was through Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. They're saying that they are traced all the way back as well to be in that national lineage. And then they mention Abraham by name. He's the first one to receive the promises from God of becoming a great nation, of uh, being God's people, of being a family of God, uh, chosen by God, as numerous as the stars. So they're, they're using that as kind of like a, we're important, we're chosen, we're separate, we're different from you guys, from all the Gentiles, all the people on the earth, we're Abraham's children. But, just for the record, Abraham's children were chosen that way in order that they were to be a uh, light to the nations. They were supposed to display God. They were supposed to be set apart that people, the nations, would be drawn to God. But, you know, that's not what these people are doing, really. And Paul says, basically, well, how does that make you better than me? If that's their argument, I have the same heritage. Paul's testimony is is in several places. I'll give you a piece of it in one spot. In Acts chapter 22, Paul's dealing with a Jewish mob. And he says this in verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. Um, Cilicia. He says, uh, but brought up in the city, in this city, which he's talking to. This is in Jerusalem. So he said, I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are, I persecuted this way, Jesus, Christians, what are you saying? I persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those uh also, who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's telling you how pious and whatnot he was for Judaism. Paul goes on to tell about how Jesus appeared to him on that road in a blinding light. Jesus told him, asked him, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus told him to repent, be baptized, and then go preach the gospel of the kingdom to everyone, uh, making disciples of Christ instead of legalistic Judaism. And Jesus also said this of Paul at the same time. In Acts chapter 9, it was recorded in verse 15. He, Paul, Jesus speaking, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That'd be everyone. But this here. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Jesus actually said he's going to suffer for me. So how did Paul see his own heritage? These guys are obviously bragging about theirs. How did he see his in light of what the world honors, in light of what these men brag on? How did Paul see his? Well, Philippians 3, verse 5, 
Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. It meant he was perfect. It meant nobody could find him in failure. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered and the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what those accolades meant to him. He had the heritage, but Paul's badge of honor was Christ alone. And most likely these false apostles were trying to drive the Corinthians into legalism, trying to put uh, forced obedience on them to the Jewish laws, keeping the laws and whatnot. Paul knows Judaism too. Paul was Judaism. That's what he's basically saying here. He was the face of Judaism. And he hasn't simply swerved away from that faith. In fact, he's done the opposite. He's seen that that faith is completely fulfilled. Judaism is completely fulfilled in Christ. That he's realized, Paul has, that scriptures are about Jesus. All these Jewish scriptures are about Jesus, the Jew, who is their God and became their Jewish Messiah. That's that's how he sees scripture. So you have the honor of the world that these guys are kind of living in with their accolades and their history and all these things. And then you have the honor of Christ. Look what Paul says here, and we'll move quick. Verse 23, he says, Are they servants? That's that word deacon again. Are they deacons or servants of Christ? He's being sarcasm, sarcastic again. I'm a better one. Being sarcastic again, I'm talking like a madman, sarcasm, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Paul doesn't really consider them to be servants of Christ. He'd already called them deacons of the devil in verse 15. You can go back and look at that. We talked about it last week. Paul says, let the honor of Christ be shown in their deeds. Um, Or you could say, let those be recognized who look most like Christ. So pause a minute here and consider how Paul defined being a better servant of Christ. He called himself a better one. How so, Paul? You shared the gospel with five million people. You had a hundred come down front last week. How are you, you better? He says greater labors, more imprisonment, countless beatings, and near death. That's how he describes being a better servant of Christ. The trophy of these false apostles' faith, what's that? Okay, well, having followers, having financial prosperity, being secure, uh, have people running in circles trying to honor them. Is that what apostles are due? Is that what they should be? Is that how they should be treated? What is the Christian Medal of Honor? We're going to talk about it. What is the Christian Medal of Honor? Yes, Jesus is our reward, I know. He alone gets all honor. But if we were to decide on a medal to hang around somebody's neck as, you know, one who should be honored for their faith, that they've been a leader among Christians, what what would be the grade for it? I asked that earlier. We'll come back to it now. What What would be the grade for it? Well, Paul's medal here is hard work, prison, suffering, and almost dying. That, that's his medal. Why? Because it showed his genuine love. It showed his genuine love. You know, celebrities, they say all the time they love their fans. 
you know, whether they're rock stars or rap stars or TV stars, where they all talk about how they love their fans and they're collecting followers on social media with all of their clout, you know. But fame and clout will never display how much we love somebody. Fame and clout will never display how much we love, you know, how respected we are will never display how much we love, uh, nor does how much we offer somebody, how much I want to give you. That will not display how much we love. How much we sacrifice will always display how much we love. How much we sacrifice will always display how much we love. Paul carries on here with the sarcastic boasting a bit longer. And he's like saying, oh, what? Okay, okay. You want specifics? You want me to be specific? Uh, they claim to be like Christ. You want to know how I've been like Christ? Let me show you how I've been like Christ. And he says here, verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. A lot of these things in this list, you can go back and Acts and see when they occurred. But here he says this. And I want you to think about this one especially. we get the others quick, but this one especially. Think about this a minute. The beating came, not by the Romans here. The beating came by the synagogue rulers, the religious leaders, the Jews, his own people who are supposed to be the ones that are the voice of God. That's who did this. 40 less one, less one meant that that was their act of being merciful. They held one back. And that was also, honestly, it was just to make sure they didn't displease God by not being merciful with their discipline. So they held one back. They would strip them bareback, stretch them out with his arms around a wooden pole so that his back was pulled tight. And then he'd get 13 lashes on one side of his back, 13 lashes on the other side of his back, and 13 lashes down the center of his back. Paul could have avoided this. This is what you need to hear. Paul could have avoided this two different ways. One, he could have claimed that he was a Roman citizen because he was. And if he were a Roman citizen, they wouldn't dare have touched him to do that. But he was also Jewish. And he would not remove himself from them in the hopes that they too might be saved by his faithfulness to Christ. That his witness of saying, I'll take your lashes because Christ is worth it. That, 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 that his witness to them was made possible by accepting those lashes, right? He also could have said he was a Christian. I'm not, I'm not a Jew. In, uh, I've re- rejected Judaism. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Christian now. I'm not under your authority anymore. But he didn't. Why not? Because he was a Jew. Because he was a Jew. And he knew that Jesus was not in contrast with the Jewish scriptures, but that Jesus uh, was the author and fulfillment of those Jewish scriptures and law. You know, so he refused to separate Jesus or himself from them. First Corinthians 9 verse 19, Paul wrote this. He said, for though I am free of all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Listen, that meant beating for him. And he took that beating five times, it says. Five times. Is there any doubt he loved them? Think about that a minute. Romans 9 verse 3, Paul says, I I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're the Israelites. 
Romans 10 verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. Romans 11 verse 13, he said, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify that ministry, my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. See where his heart is for them? He goes on in verse 25, 2 Corinthians 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was a Roman punishment. Once I was stoned. Stoned was meant to kill. And in fact, when that event occurred, you can read about it in Acts. They thought he was dead and they left him for dead, but he was not. He survived. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day, to me, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Modern day language, uh, I was in three plane crashes. Would you fly again if your plane crashed three times? If you survived three plane crashes, would you get back on a plane? <laughs> what would you think about God? Like, God, what's going on? I'm trying to serve you. My plane keeps crashing. And you know, what would you be, you know? He said he was adrift at sea for 24 hours. That means he was floating, aimless, helpless, hopeless in the op open ocean. Probably clinging to a, a piece of a busted up boat. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, that is my worst nightmare. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. Would you go back on a ship after that? And not just to face down your fear, fears. Oh man, get back, get back out there, man. Get back out there and face your fears. Not about that. It's because carrying the gospel required that you do it. How about if the people you reach with that gospel by getting back on that boat or back in that plane are going to beat you for it? Man, that's where he is. He goes on in verse 26. He says, on frequent journeys, which means he's never home. He's always away from home. He's on frequent journeys. He's in danger from rivers. That basically means like trying to cross the river and being swept away. Or the animals that are in the river, alligators, whatnot, you know, uh, piranha, who knows. Flooding, that's another threat. Basically, it's like taking the gospel to the Amazon today and having to cross that river multiple times. Danger from robbers. Imagine being one of the people who traveled across the American West and coming through uh, the West when it was wild in the 1800s and there were bandits everywhere and there was no law to be found. That kind of thing. Danger from my own people, clearly. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. That's the saddest one on the list right there. That would be the super apostles maybe here, except that he doesn't believe them to be true believers, but danger from his own false brothers. Verse 27, in toil, that means work that seems to have no benefit, like digging a ditch and filling it up, and then dig it up again and fill it back up. That's what toil means. Um, hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, Often without food. Without food now. Often, he says, in cold. You can tap me out on that one too. And exposure. What a big word that is. Just being exposed. In whatever way that looks. You know, no roof over your head, no clothes on your back. I don't know. Exposure. Who would have quit? Would you quit? Ultimately, Paul's beheaded in Rome. And, and this is spiritual warfare, ladies and gentlemen. That. That spiritual warfare. It's not... How you're going to pay your credit card. It's not about 
how you're going to get to work on time because traffic is so terrible. It's, that's not spiritual warfare. And I want you to stop sometime now, later, whatever. At some point, I want you to go back and reread that list again. Take yourself there. For us, it's a few pages. It's a few sentences and stuff. But for Paul, it was every single moment was a moment Paul lived in his life and felt and suffered. This is the Christian Medal of Honor. That is the Christian Medal of Honor. Verse 28, he says, And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me and my anxiety, that means like cause for concern or burden, for all the churches. Remember, Paul's writing this to a church. Corinthians, are, it's a church. He carries a burden for them. It's a deep love for them. It's like a healthy uh, desire to see them grow. And the same is true for all pastors. But Paul here is not pastor of all the churches, but his heart hurts for them all. He's played a role in most all of them being planted. And look, I realize I'm the pastor of Salt River Community Church, so it kind of sounds self-serving here. But wherever you are, I want to encourage you to love your pastor, man. Be patient with him. If he's truly a servant of Christ, then he carries a burden for you. And it comes from the Lord. And that's literally what he says here. Verse 29, we're almost done. He says, who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? Basically, that's rhetorical questions. He's highlighting two burdens he has for them here. He feels their pain. Okay? So he says, who's weak and I'm not weak? He feels their pain. We're all part of the body of Christ. If one suffers, all suffer. We, that's what he's saying. And he also seeks to defend them. That's what he means by, you know, who's made to fall and I'm not angry. If someone causes someone to fall, I'm, I'm furious, fiery angry about it. It's what it means. It's what he's saying. And before uh, Paul sounds like he's proud of all his suffering, before he sounds like he's really, truly boasting, even though, remember, he's been sarcastic with a lot of his language. He clarifies something as he finishes here in verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he uh, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King uh, Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. All that he could boast about only displayed how weak he was. That's what he's saying. And so only God gets the glory for the endurance that, that he had. Some people like to humble brag. You know, you know what that is? Hey, all glory to God. But, you know, with one hand, they're still waving forward. Hey, keep the applause coming my way. You know, oh, go glory to God, but they want the applause. Paul's saying, look, God knows I'm sincere here. God knows I'm sincere here. God knows I'm telling the truth. All these hardships, they did happen to me. I know you weren't there, but I'm telling you they happened. They did happen. And his bragging has only proven to highlight his weakness and give God glory. And he closes with an example of his weakness. That's what that little last piece is. He, he, he once snuck away in a basket rather than facing arrest. Paul once came to Damascus in, you know, before Christ with great respect as this famous Jewish zealot ruler guy from the temple that was there to collect these, uh, Christians and whatnot. Very powerful, very recognized person. 
But later, as a servant of Christ, he's lowered over a wall hidden in a basket to get away from Damascus. What a contrast with the way these super apostles are seeking honor. What weakness in your life highlights God's glory? Do you have one? Are you humble enough to expose that, to let it be seen, to let it be known? Are you allowing God to use whatever that weakness is? Are you making sure that people see it so that they recognize what only God could be doing in your life? If you don't highlight both God and your weakness, then that type of boasting, it just turns into pride. It just turns into pride. And it's spiritually pointless for anybody who's witnessing it. All right? So how do we respond to this? How do we close out respond to this? Well, I would say we need to change the way we view Christian champions. This is just how I feel about it. The qualities that we think merit a badge of honor versus those uh, that make us question somebody's faith, they're actually reversed, in my humble opinion. Uh, blessing is defined by comfort and success. Man, they're blessed. Immediately, your brain thinks they're, they're comfortable, they're successful, they're financially set. And those blessed people then are supposed to be honored and respected, especially the ones that are super blessed. While those who face hard times, who find trouble and challenges everywhere they turn, we condemn them for harboring some unconfessed sin. Or we suggest that they're running from God. Or maybe they don't even know God at all. And look, we need to start recognizing that those who love best, whose faith is actually the strongest, they're the most dangerous to the enemy and the current world that we live in. So their lives should be a struggle. They should be a struggle, but the Medal of Honor is that life. The Christian Medal of Honor is that life. Their closeness to Jesus is like no other, and he is their eternal reward. Jesus said, before you get excited about those superheroes, that all believers should live that way. Luke nine twenty three. if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Does that mean we need to go find beating and imprisonment and certain death? No. But it means we should live and make disciples in such a way that that finds us. I'm just saying. So maybe you're hearing all this and <laughs> as a skeptic about Christianity and Jesus, I'm sure this doesn't move you to want to race to the altar, you know. Um, maybe it does, but I, I feel like I, I feel like I get the challenge of it all. But I hope it does illustrate something for you that it's the truth, that it, the, the gospel is truth. That that, it, that nobody would say all this if they were trying to just get people to come. It's the truth that, and, and it proves it proves the love of Christ and the love of Christ's disciples. It does that they would suffer like this. That, that, that his disciples would suffer like this in order to win people to the Lord, to show them that Jesus loves them, that suffering becomes an act of love because we know the truth. And the truth is this, the world's already full of suffering. It's already full of suffering. So we embrace that suffering in order to share hope. That's what Christ did. 
That's what John 3.16 is all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Giving him was putting him on a cross. He suffered and died because of how much he loved us in a world of suffering and wants us. Today, man, I hope that's you. I hope that's something that burns in your heart right now. And I hope you tell him. Just say it in your own words, but tell him your life is his life. Give your life to him. Tell him you want him. You want him to forgive your sin. You want him to be in you and lead you and guide you. You want to know him. And I want you to tell us because we want to pray with you and help you find a good church that will help you learn how to grow. Or if you're in Tempe, you can come hang with us. It would be great. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is amazing. Thank you for all you uh, do and teach us through uh, your word. And I pray, God, you help us be faithful to honor it with the things that we do. Help us be bold with our faith and help us be, um, I don't want to say worthy, Lord, but I pray that, God, our lives would be reflective, I guess, of you, that people would see you through the way that we live and, and even and maybe especially if that means suffering. We ask these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.